I was born in Elgin, Texas. My daddy taught himself the carpenter trade, doing for the black folk there. I tell you, anything that man put his hand to, table, chair, wedding chest, he make that wood sing. Now one day, a man, Mr. T.O. Purcell come round. He a white man, on his own store. Stable, hotel. He said to my daddy, I hear you the finest carpenter in Elgin. My daddy tell him, well, I can't say one way or the other, but uh, I knows a bit about some. So Mr. T.O. Purcell take my daddy to this house he was building. Biggest house in town. They walk in there and say, this here gonna be the library. What you think about that? My daddy say, well, I think you need some bookcases. Well, then, that's what I want you to make me. Take my, my daddy worked there. And when he finished, <laughs> bring me around. Uh, Mr. Purcell, this here my boy. I'd like to show him what I done. Well, come on in through the front door. Just like that. And we did. When I seen them bookcases, all carved with scroll and flowers, baskets of fruit, little angels floating in the corner. That was the most beautiful thing I ever seen. About a month later, another man come round. I seen what you did for T.O. Can't let that old dog top me. You come around my house and I'll show you what I need. My daddy go with him to the edge of town. With nothing there but six white men. Twelve foot of rope. And the pepper tree they hung him from. My daddy tools. What are you gonna do with them? Well, I ain't building no bookcase. Hello, and welcome to Cut to Black, a podcast about the ways in which we experience television. I'm Gretchen Felker-Martin, horror author and film critic, and with me is my co-host, Sean T. Collins, television critic and author of Pain Don't Hurt. And today we are going to be talking about the life and work of Michael K. Williams, who died far, far too soon. We're both big fans of his, and it seemed like the natural thing to talk about his most iconic performances and the ways that they impacted us. It is a real time of mourning. I think for anyone who's been as invested professionally, personally, emotionally in 
the last 20 years of television as you and I both have. And the comparison that I reach for instantly is James Gandolfini. Yeah. They both were incredibly talented. Obviously, the breakout characters on the shows they were both on, they died way, way too young at a point where you you really do feel robbed of the work they could have done as older men. Yeah. Because they were already so intelligent, so talented. Their performances felt so lived in as men who are younger than I am right now. And to lose that and the way that they're that their 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 gifts would sort of accrue over time like sediment. Uh, it's really really painful to even think about. I think we're never going to get Peter O'Toole's last few decades of work out of them, yeah. or Gregory Peck's later career. All of that. Yep. And that's. I know that all our listeners know this. Of course, all of this is just. Uh, a side table at the the tragedy of their actual deaths. Right. Which is what matters. But right. we're a television podcast and both of us have structured our lives around television for a long time now. And it really, it does hurt to lose this amount of talent. You can feel the future grow smaller. Yeah. You're absolutely right that, this is a loss first and foremost for his family and his friends and his coworkers. By all accounts, his community too. He was really active and well-known in his neighborhood. Yeah. Um, but it does feel, again, to compare it to Gandolfini, I think really more than any other actors, he and Gandolfini feel... Uh, it's the word I'm looking for. Sort of native to the form of prestige television in a yes. way that nobody else does. Like they both, they both had had careers before then as character actors, and 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 Williams had a whole career as a dancer and a choreographer before he was a character actor. But they broke out in such a big way on these shows in which television itself broke out, and you cannot picture. Te- the state of television today without these two actors, I think specifically more than just about any other actors uh, that there are. Yeah. I think I, I would say that it's them and in a, a more complicated way, Cheryl Lee. Yeah. I think most people would go immediately to Omar little from the wire mm-hmm. thinking about Michael K. Williams and you and I are, are pretty solidly cooler on the wire than the majority of, of our fellow television critics. But there's absolutely no getting around how tremendous he is in it. Not at all. It's not a sentimental role. He doesn't play as a straight up Robin Hood. But he has this tenderness to him like the fact that he doesn't like swearing or he never does drugs in some ways it reminds me of Gandolfini as Tony who's also explicitly and implicitly compared to a little boy many times Mm -hmm. 
there is they're both performances that get right at the heart of manhood and masculinity in these two related but different contexts and also to the heart of the small and vulnerable person who has to grow into that kind of man. Right. That's an incredibly difficult job as an actor. The, the balancing act he's asked to pull between personal vulnerability and exterior and, and pragmatic cool is really extraordinary because Omar is the coolest character on the wire. Uh, there's there's really nobody even close and that is you know that's how he for i mean he made an impression with his first line i remember it very vividly you you go inside one of the barksdale cruise houses and then they cut to outside and you see these characters you've never seen before sitting in a car casing the place and he just he sees somebody leaving and he just says well now yeah. and i remember like who's this cool customer yeah like and that carried through almost to the end he literally you know he loses his cool in the colloquial sense by that final season but you know the 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 bit where he's whistling the farmer in the dell and everyone shouts omar coming you know and and yeah. He has like a kind of a, I always call it like an an ultimate Marvel team up between him and the other uh, cool assassin character, Brother Muzon, to take down Stringer Bell. Stringer Bell. He has these moments. And then, you know, when he makes his escape from uh, Marlo's hitters by leaping from a balcony and then disappearing, you know, obviously it winds up, you know, he breaks his leg and, 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 it's it's horrible for him, but it just adds to the myth you know, to the mythos of this character. Like these, in at least a couple of cases, very experienced murderers are like, "What the hell is with this guy? Where did right. he like?" I mean, it's literally something that happened to Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And you know, Williams, as an actor, he could do this because he has an intensity to him, and. It's also in his look because of that scar that he got in a bar fight on his 25th birthday in real life. You know, it's a very distinctive feature of him as a physical performer. Yeah, really close connection between his face and affect on screen and Oliver Reed's. Um, Mm. Reed was almost totally, his acting career was almost destroyed by that scar, which he also got in a bar fight. And it ended up becoming sort of his distinctive feature. And I think it's the same for Williams. Right. It is such an immediately recognizable scar. Yeah. In a fictional context, it's amazing how many different things he makes it mean. Like, if you were to sit me down and ask me how every Michael K. Williams character got that scar, I think I could very, very believably present a totally different answer every time. Absolutely. You know, you're 100% right. Like, I'm thinking about the, the, the versions of him, the characters that he played, that is. Um, and yeah, you invent these backstories for him based on this one facial feature alone. And I think the, the, the 
places that cast him use that intelligently to su- to suggest a depth that you couldn't get right away. You know, when he said when he said, "Well, now who is he? He's a complete stranger. We've never seen this character before." But you look at his face, and you're like, "This guy's led a life." Yeah, he's been through some shit. He has the literal physical mark of it indelibly stamped on his face where you see it as soon as you see him. Yep. It's it's really remarkable that he was able to I think a lesser actor would have been would have rested on that, you know? Like I or look tough been destroyed by it. That's also true. Like maybe you just don't get cast or you, you yeah. But he made it work as an actor. Like, as a person making choices, he kind of shored up that scar yeah. with how he would, with how he would, with how he acted. And that takes a lot of talent. And in, in the, in the wire, he's the product of this really run down and exploited and abused part of Baltimore and his body reflects it mm-hmm. you know before he was ever an adult he was marked by the life that he was forced to lead because of the accident of where he was born and in my personal favorite of his roles when he he played chalky white on terence winter's boardwalk empire it's so clearly and immediately evident that he has it because he's unbelievably pissed off all the time and got into a dangerous fight (laughs) right it's incredible how angry he is in that role and how natural it feels and then you put it next to omar who is a complete cucumber and i know that's the essence of acting but most people bring more of themselves yeah there's a big difference between those those two characters who on a surface level are both you know dangerous criminals and yet are completely and totally distinct Yeah, and I think that was an underrated aspect of Boardwalk Empire. Something that people didn't appreciate is the way the show did sort of cast against type. Yeah. Um, You know, it's it's true of Buscemi, who a lot of people found uncharismatic compared to the difficult men who were the leads in so many other shows. Right, and I think you missed the point without saying you missed the point. Yeah, exactly. And I think you could include Omar as, you know, one of the four, you know, I mean... Because The Wire had such a sprawling cast and you were looking at sort of two sides of the law all the time, there was always like, there's Omar and McNulty or there's Stringer Bell and McNulty or whoever. But Omar is the character from that show. Yes. And and he's he's sort of an anti-hero. He's... I mean, it's, it's The Wire, so no one is like 100% perfect, admirable, but... Omar rules. Yeah. He's got the best MO. He has the best catchphrases, the way he would say, oh, indeed. Like, yeah. I loved that. I like, I still say indeed the way Omar says indeed. And one thing, you know, that certainly struck me the first time I watched The Wire, I was like, hello, is Omar's gay? And yeah. that was kind of. I don't want to say a bolt out of the blue, but but it was. It certainly was for the time. For sure. That they would afford a gay character 
this sort of unbelievably cool macho, like the Batman of that show. And the scar helped cement that when you learn Omar's gay, all you have to do is look at him to see that he's been through some shit. And whether it was because of that, and certainly plausible, it could have been completely unrelated as most of his, as much of his sort of quote unquote professional life was unrelated by from that. Yeah. But the tenderness that he showed his boyfriend in that first season, like, do you oh remember that God. scene where on the hood of the car and he's like, they're kind of like cuddling and almost like, I think he tousles his hair or something like that. It's a beautiful moment and an unguarded moment for a person who has to always be on guard. And I think a lesser actor would have bobbled it. I do. Yeah, I think so too. He was also totally unselfconscious about being one of the first black actors to play a gay man on a major dramatic role on TV. Mm -hmm. And there's no, never personally or professionally did he distance himself from that aspect of the character and in the role he completely inhabits it. Yeah. He's a very recognizable kind of gay man. And, you know, I think it's a really beautiful portrayal. I agree. And then again, where Omar was cool and Chalky was perpetually angry and aggrieved, Chalky's undoing is his love of a woman. Yeah. And his sort of complex relationships with uh, several women, actually. And, you know, I mean, just perfectly convincing as a guy who's head over heels over someone he shouldn't be and and dies for it, really. I would say that he's probably, and this this is, you know, to the best of my knowledge, that he's straight. He's probably the best straight guy playing a gay guy since Robin Williams in the birdcage. But yeah, his relationship with his wife and with his eldest daughter and with his lover, daughter Maitland, who is played by maybe one of the most underappreciated actresses working Margot Bingham is so complicated. There's so much moving through it. There's so many different sources of tension. Chucky's whole life is about giving his children and his wife and his family things that he did not have and could not have. But that is shot through start to finish with his resentment of them for having them. And with his feeling that they, they look down on him because he is of a different social class or was because he speaks roughly and they don't because his skin is darker than theirs. Like, yeah, that's important. Yeah. There's such a tremendous amount going on inside that family unit and inside his affair with daughter. It's really incredible. It's a fantastic role and one that gains importance over time. And I think, 
I certainly recall this being the case that one of the one of the complaints about Boardwalk Empire was simply that Michael K. Williams wasn't given enough to do. Like you could just say that and be like the, the like the prosecution rests, you yeah. know, and 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 there was a degree of truth to it because yeah. it was a big cast and and because, you know, that character did recede into the background now and then. But I think it speaks to Williams's talent and the importance of that character to the creators that as the end game approached, he became as central as any other character on that show. Yeah. They, they knew as it was, as it was headed into the end game, who can we lean on here? Oh, we can lean on Michael K. Williams. Who's a genius. And they did. And it worked. It, it's, it's one of the most gutting emotional arcs his what he what he goes through in the final two seasons is one of the most gutting emotional arcs on the whole show to me i guess probably second only to richard harrow and and well and jillian darmany too but um you know i mean that's 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 <sighs> sorry i'm getting a little emotional it was no um, i i i i get you when i think about the just the beauty of the prison break scene that starts his arc in the fifth season mm-hmm. the way that he shows so clearly that his body is like broken down that he's in pain that his joints hurt and then to see this like rage bloom up out of him as the opportunity presents itself. And it's all in this early spring forest where he and the other prisoners are, you know, breaking rocks and cutting down trees and (sighs) doing slave labor. Yeah. And for him, I think that, if you had rested that scene on a less talented actor, it could have felt really hacky. You know, like the, the striped jumpsuits and stuff. Yeah. You actually have to be quite a presence on screen to get audiences over the hill of, of seeing stuff like that. That's, that's sort of indelibly culturally silly. He had a real knack for that. He did. I mean, I think in a similar way, he was in Lovecraft Country, which is a show that I don't really think very much of at all. Although I did enjoy a lot of the performances on it. And again, it's it's different because Boardwalk Boardwalk Empire was good, and and even when it was you know even when it was saddled with you know unfortunate sort of facts of historical facts like the stripey jumpsuits for prisoners. Right. Um it was still good. Lovecraft Country was not. He was though. Um once again playing a gay man in this case one who lived in the closet uh for the most part. If you know me at all, you know I'm a huge sucker for this kind of scene. But there's a scene where he accompanies his 
lover to a drag ball and he dances and just loses himself in it. And I, I adore those kinds of scenes. I love scenes about the power of music and the power of dancing. I just, I just do. I'm just a huge mark for that. I'm really but with I, you on the general quality of Lovecraft country, which I, I really didn't like at all, but that moment really got me. Mm-hmm. Watching that, I was like, "Wow, there's a there's a much better show in here somewhere." Yeah, yeah. And leave it to him to find it. You yeah. know, uh, he well, just brought so. There was just. A, I think, again, you. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> sorry, I was just going to say that I think his earlier career as a dancer and choreographer is really important here. This is this is maybe a little bit of a stretch, but when people talk about the lasting success of Alien and the iconic status of the titular creature, I firmly believe that the reason is that Ridley Scott did not go to someone who had been designing monsters for movies. He went to someone who was doing completely his own thing, H.R. Geiger. And he let him realize it. Mm -hmm. And when Michael K. Williams, he has an entire extra skill set. You know, it's like Mads Mikkelsen busting out his completely insane modern ballet skills at the end of another round. Whenever Williams is on screen, he has incredible grace and when he gets a chance to dance on television there are things that he can say with it that other actors can't right he knows what his body is conveying yeah that's a great observation the the degree of control with which he can deploy his whole body You know, people go to acting school to learn that shit, you know? Right, and, and they're still not as good at it as right. he was because he adapted a pre-existing skill set. Yeah. I mean, you talked about the scene where Omar jumps off the balcony earlier. But whenever he's in motion, during any violent scene or when he's running the things that he'll put his body through so that the shot looks more perfect or more interesting are incredible. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about uh, his fight with his underling Dunn Pernsley in Boardwalk Empire, (sighs) which is a, a pretty classic Ralph Cifaretto versus Tony Soprano kind of situation where it's just instantly unbelievably brutal. Mm-hmm. And very like it's gutter fighting. Yeah. If you get the other guy's eye, you pull it out. And to just watch him during that scene, I think anyone who is a fan of action film knows that it is two very different things to be great at fighting as a sport and great at making it look like you know why you're in a real fight. Right. And that's what he does. 
the second that the shit hits the fan, he looks like he's trying to murder someone. You can sit, you can fucking pause the frame for all you want, all you care. Right down to the bone. He has it. It's, mm -hmm. it's a really rare thing. And that fight was able to accrue meaning because his first confrontation with Dunn Pernsley was played by Eric Leray Harvey, who's also phenomenal in that Absolutely show. Incredible. What if, I mean, just the two, I, I would just like to listen to the, the two of them talk to each other. They, oh. And a show that's replete with great voices. They have two of, of the best. Yeah. They could really do a whole show where they just read the phone book. Yep. But you know, the first time he quote unquote fights with Dunn Pernsley, he doesn't lift a finger they're in prison, Pernsley, or in jail, that is. Pernsley has picked up on the, who's new to town, has picked up on the fact that, you Chuck know, of, of, uh, right, and and decides to, you know, kind of score points by picking on him. And one by one, the other guys in the cell with them reveal that they owe Chalky, or they or their families owe Chalky favors for his generosity because he's kind of become like a lot of the gangster characters in Boardwalk Empire, he's become a, a civic leader through criminality and he doesn't need to lift a finger. These other guys beat the shit out of Dunbarnsley for him. And so you're in that scene, you're also paying off. And I think he knew this as an actor. He had to be, he had to show that he could hold his own with this guy on his own, which he'd never been asked to do before. And, and that's, that's an, sorry, go ahead. That is that indiscretion with daughter when he's cheating on his wife with her. That's really the first time that he shows his ass. Before that, Chalky's incredibly collected. And for the most part, he makes the right moves. Mm -hmm. He usually squeaks out a win for himself along the way, even dealing with racism both at large and from his fellow criminals. But when Dunn comes after him, for the first time he's on the wrong foot. Yeah. He's not he's not where he should be. I think that character is of of chalky. You're right, he has to be in control of himself virtually at all times. And I think that contributes to the range that we see beneath the surface of that character, because it's a constant push and pull for him. The ethnic white characters, the Irish and Italians and Jews, oftentimes they need him and will treat him with at least a modicum of respect at that point, because they need him. But then when, you know, the second they don't, he just, and I, I think this was one of people's complaints of, with the show, like I said earlier, is that he would recede to the background because he would be pushed there right, by these other gangsters. Right. It's uh, a thoughtful choice. He's being exploited. Right. Exactly. Even though he's at the top of his pyramid, it's a brick in another pyramid. Right. And he could never get past that. And that's one of the tragic elements of that character. Right. And it's why the first time he fucks up at all, it ruins him. Destroys him. Yeah. Yeah. You know, from that, that moment, nothing ever goes right for him again. 
Right. And you get some fun moments from this character too. You know, I mean, it's not all, you know, I mean, he, he has an, he, he, he again has an ultimate Marvel team up with Al fucking Capone. Oh my God. It rules. So it's so good. It's so hard. Oh my God. That is the coolest. That's so cool. That moment. Uh, at the conclusion of, of, of just an amazing arc. Yeah. Probably um, my, my favorite part of the show. Mine too. Mine too. And, um, but you know, it's funny because as I've seen people discuss Boardwalk Empire since Williams died, a lot of people say that their favorite season is the chalky season, which is season four. And I get it, man. Yeah. I get it. That dude is just so magnetic in that role for all the reasons we've talked about. And watching all of these sort of slow burning fires that the show has started in his life all go up at once. Yeah. I think that and this is a fairly major spoiler for Boardwalk Empire, so if you're looking to start the show, maybe tap out for about uh, 20 seconds. Okay. When his daughter dies during the botched hit on Dr. Narcisse, that's one of the most crushing moments of violence in modern TV. It's just this moment where as soon as it happens, you, the viewer wish you could undo it. Yep. You know, it's like when you're a teenager and, and you're backing out of the garage and you take off the side view mirror and immediately your heart is through the bottom of your stomach and you wish you could go back to a world where it hadn't happened. Mm-hmm. And to make to make a moment like that for television is so incredibly special. It really crushes everyone involved. Yeah, it does. It I mean it begins the aftershocks that will eventually bring down everyone in the show. Yep. It's the beginning and the end. Yeah. It's the first time that the the scrappy comeback plan doesn't go off. Mm-hmm. It, it blows up in everyone's faces. Right. Yeah. It's a direct contrast to the end of, of season three. Yes. The, the, the team up with Al Capone and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, a big part of it is that that's Chalky coming when called. But when he needs help, Nucky is is pushing him away with one hand and you know giving him a five dollar bill with the other. It's it's next to nothing. Men like Chalky aren't allowed to make mistakes. Yeah, yeah. There's no give. Right. I mean, how many times does Nucky fuck up, lose all his money, destroy his power base, and essentially? inconvenience everyone that he's in any kind of business arrangement with and still he claws it back yep because he has the space to fuck up right that's the inherent tension of boardwalk empire as far as chalky white is concerned is that he does not have the leeway that nucky has or that the italians have yep or really anybody has like he is uniquely because there for a black man, there is no 
you can have a, you can have a legit public face within your own community, which he does, but you're inherently illegitimate to the white world. Like, even if he were, even if he were simply like an upstanding civic leader in his community, and there was no respect him less. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he, he, he cannot. He's just not given the opportunity to operate on both sides of the fence like Nucky does, or or that's that's the tension of that character. There's and nothing he, to be gained by having him to dinner and shaking his hand, and so they don't do it. Exactly. And he has to choke that down for four time fucking after seasons. Time after time. Yep. And you can see it get worse every time. Yeah. Even as he, you know, he'll claw out a little concession for himself. Or when he takes over the supper club that gets blown up at the end of, or midway through season three. Mm -hmm. Even then, he's got a fight to be allowed in his own place. Yeah. There's just this endless series of indignities. And I think that the way that he feels that that continues at home is such an interesting choice to depict. I think that a lot of lesser shows, when they get into like the history of organized crime in the black community, can get a little schmaltzy about family units. And with Boardwalk Empire, it's like his dream is to have this family that's sort of socially white almost to have the big house to have, you know, this, this pale family that is higher status. And then at the same time, he hates it. It's such a complicated thing to show. It's a lot to ask of any actor and it speaks to Williams's talent that they asked it of him. Yeah. And that he pulled it off, you know, (laughs) you were talking about sort of funnier moments with him earlier. That part where his daughter's boyfriend comes to talk to him while he's whittling and he's very transparently whittling like a steak (laughs) or a knife. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. He, uh, he has, and in basically unimpeachable straight face. Yeah. I mean, has ha, like just one of the greatest straight men of all time. Yeah. You know, just, just d- depending on how he sets his face, looks like he's never smiled before. <laughs> yes. You know, that was, uh, that was kind of his whole deal when he was asked to make a string of, of sitcom appearances in the, the 2000s and early 2010s. Right. I remember seeing him on Community, and Community. You know, they're they're playing on his really hard on screen reputation, and it's it's just hysterical to see him turn it on and off at will. Yeah, that kind of acting talent—it's so easy to get instant emotional reactions from your audience just by changing your expression really quick. You know, I'm thinking of the few times on boardwalk empire that he smiles or makes a little joke. And it's so incredibly endearing and vulnerable. 
he smiles when he dies. Yep. That I rewatched it earlier this year, and that scene was one of a a generous double handful of moments that made me break down crying because in the end he finally learns how to take the indignity Mm. and it it doesn't matter that he's only ever going to get to exercise that skill once it's beautiful it's one of the best death scenes in a show that you could conceivably think of as nothing but death scenes, you know? Um, For sure, Boardwalk Empire tops my list when it comes to death scenes. Yeah. Over and, think, and over again. Oof. I think that it probably has more on-screen death and like dramatic death scenes of major characters than basically anything other than game of thrones yeah yeah to the point where when they by nature of when this fifth season is set takes place um they have to skip over arnold rothstein's death and i just felt robbed oh i felt so robbed it's so awful i hate it yeah that's i mean it's uh, not it's not their fault they had a limited amount of time to work but you have Michael Stuhlbarg in this role, and Rothstein had an incredible death. Yep. And like, oh, that's that's the one that got away. You know, yeah, it really. Is. That's 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 Clemenza not being able to come to terms for playing for being in the Godfather Part Two, so they have to create Frankie Pantangeli. Like, that's a, that's a tough one. Oh. Uh, anyway, it's that's an that's a complete aside. I'm sorry. Um. Still. Yeah. But you know, it's a gift that we were given that we were able to see Williams play that moment for that character. You yeah, know, it is. That wasn't guaranteed. No. That that shows on-screen life was quite tenuous. Yeah. Um and I think I feel that way about every time that I've seen him and of course that feeling is stronger now but what an incredible thing to be alive at the time when he was doing the work that defined his career. I really do feel lucky. I do. What what a privilege to be able to write about it professionally. You know, it's, (sighs) I was trying to think of a whole metaphor with uh, that extremely famous Yankees lineup, but I don't know jack shit about baseball. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, it it was just an incredible privilege to watch that career unfold, to have it happen in my lifetime right in front of me and shows that I was aware of and watching. Yeah. Changed television. It did. He did. He really did. One of uh, a small handful of actors you could say that about. You want to leave it there? Yeah, that feels like a good place to wrap. All right. You've been listening to Cut to Black, a podcast about the ways in which we experience television. I've been Gretchen Falker Martin. I've been Shanti Collins. 
you can follow us on anchor.fm or Spotify, anywhere podcasts are hosted. Um, if you feel like it, please go ahead and leave us a review on Apple podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, have a good week. This one was for you, Michael. <laughs>